LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Anthony Peake discussing his book, Time and the Rose Garden, Encountering the Magical in the Life and Works of J.B. Priestley. The interview resumes as we discuss the possibility that future events can affect both the present and the past. Beyond the concept of precognition, perceiving the future from the present, uh, we all understand the idea of the past influencing the present and by extension the future. That makes sense in our mainstream conception of time. But there's the idea of the future influencing the present and also influencing the past, actually. That is to say, events that in the conventional timeline have already happened. That's raised several times as well uh, in your book. And, of course, quantum physics, uh, yet again, has already suggested a mechanism by which this may happen. Yeah, I mean, very much. I mean, Priestley himself calls them FIPS, future influencing past. Now, you will know that I also wrote a book on the American science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. And Philip K. Dick argued very, very similar concept because he said that he would be he found himself experiencing scenarios in his in his in now that he'd written about fictionally many years before. And he suddenly finds himself in the circumstances that he'd written about. Now, again, clearly, this is the future influencing the past. And it does seem that there is this kind of resonance. But of course, if my hypothesis is correct, and we won't go into it now, but cheating the ferryman hypothesis, that we live this life many, many times, we don't just live it once, we live it many, many times, is that, in fact, the future is also a memory. So we have this kind of circularity. But in some of the priestly letters, you have even more bizarre sets of circumstances where a precognitive dream creates itself. I'll give an example. Priestley cites this example. There was a lady in about the 1890s who had a horrific dream about a monkey and the monkey was following her. And she didn't like monkeys. They, they really worried her. Now, she was living in London. She was living in Regent's Park. No monkeys in Regent's Park. So her husband turned around and said the next morning, because she was so upset, she, he said, oh, go out for a walk. Go along the Regent's Canal and go for a walk. So she goes for a walk. And it's while she's going on the walk that she wouldn't have done that day that she sees a monkey jumping from tree to tree. And it comes down and it harasses her. 
Apparently what had happened was there was some lady that owned a menagerie and one of her monkeys had escaped. But the issue is, if she had not had the dream, she wouldn't have gone out for the walk, so she wouldn't have encountered the monkey. So the dream actually caused the circumstances that stimulated the dream. So this is where we have reciprocal, almost like Russian doll type things of time, where the future influences the past, the past influences the future and everything else as well. Now, one of the letters that was the one that absolutely stunned me and one that I still even now cannot get my head round. In 1953, there was a guy and his wife who were on holiday in Dorset. And he had convinced his wife while they were away that on their way back from Dorset, they would call in at the Farnborough Air Show. And the reason was because there were things happening at that Farnborough Air Show that this guy really wants to go for. So he convinces her to go. And on the Thursday, he convinced her to go. She goes to bed on the Thursday night. She wakes up on the Friday morning and says, we can't, and this is all in the letter. And she says, we can't go to the air show because there's going to be a terrible disaster. There's going to be a plane crash. He then described, and she, the wife then turns around and she says, there is, there was a silver plane and it flies over and it disintegrated. There was a sonic boom. The plane disintegrated and one of the engines came down and kills lots of people. It's awful. And he said, oh, come on, don't be silly. It's a dream. You don't have precognitive dreams. He talks around. So they go to the Farnborough show. So they're there on, I think it was on the Saturday. So they're there on the Saturday and this plane comes over and it was the Sea Vixen, uh, DC 111, I think, something like that or something of that nature. But it was a de Havilland, but it was known as the Sea Vixen. And it was being flown by a guy called John Derry. And it flies over and she sees the silhouette and she said, oh, my God, it's that plane because it had a very distinct silhouette, the Sea Vixen. If you want to Google it, you'll see what I mean. So it flies over. And as it flies over, her husband says, that's not the plane you said. You said it was silver. That's black. And she said, oh, my word, it is. The plane I saw was definitely silver. So Derry goes over with his co-pilot, Tony Holland. They fly over. They do a sonic boom and they land. She's relieved. Dream didn't happen future had changed or whatever so they head home that afternoon and Derry was due to do another show I think later that day but what happened and this is where it gets really freaky is the sea vixen he'd flown had problems so he went back to the man the de Havilland factory had fly back to the de Havilland factory and took one of the prototypes the prototype had not been painted. It was silver. He goes over with the prototype, goes through the sonic boom, does the loop, the loop, and the plane disintegrates in exactly the way the say the woman predicted. And the engine crashed into a load of people. And I think about 66 people were killed and about 20 or 30 were seriously injured. She hears about this on the radio that night and the next day and the next few days, there were lots. And again, go onto the web. You can actually find the video of this incident and you see the silver plane. Now, J.W. Dunn would argue and I would argue as well. She recognized seeing the Pathé movie about the plane crash. And it's in the movie you see the silver plane. It's because she recognized seeing the film. 
Now, there's an interesting caveat to this story, by the way. I told that story. I have a group of readers they used to have in Liverpool. And I told that story. And one of the members of the group, Professor Sean Street, was in the group. And he started nodding and saying it's ridiculous. And I didn't know why. So after I'd told the story, he then turned around to me and said, you know, you talk about synchronicity. And I said, yes. And he said, what's the chance there are 11 of us here? It's 2013 or whatever. And he said, what's the chances of you telling that story to somebody who was actually there that day? who saw the accident take place, he'd been there. But not only that, when he left home to go to the event, his mother turned around to him and said, I had an awful dream last night. Please don't stand where you normally would be standing. That's where the plane hit. In our first interview that I mentioned earlier, uh, which is around your book, The Labyrinth of Time, I think I spoke to you 2012, I believe, maybe 2013. But anyway, I mentioned an experience during that interview that I'd actually started having at that point, which, and the, the particular, the first experience of it that I could remember was being asleep, but in my, in my mind, in my head, in my dream, whatever, I, in my, in my head, I heard a voice, uh, it was my own voice actually, and it just said no. As soon as that happened, I woke up, and within no more than two seconds, my alarm clock went off, and I remember thinking at the time, wow, what was that, that voice just said no. And then the alarm clock went off. And I've always hated being woken up by alarm clocks. I guess it maybe goes back to school days. Now, since then, I have that experience now several times a week. This morning, uh, my experience of it was the sudden need to scratch part of my body. That sudden need woke me up. And immediately, the alarm rang. It, just, it happens all the time now. I pr I'm preempting the alarm. I have some form of knowing it takes the form of something in a dream or me waking up, some form of knowing when the alarm is just about to go off. You know, how is that even possible? And I will mention something along the lines of the Farnborough Air Show. I was actually on my way from York to London on the day of, I think it was 11-7, uh, they call it. It was, was it 2005 when there was the uh, terrorist yeah, the terrorist attack at uh, on the London Underground, the, the bombing there, it was absolutely horrendous and there was a bus attack as well. I was on my way down and I would have been at King's Cross at the time of that attack. Plan was I'd get, as usual, I went down once a month for um, a business meeting. So I'd travel from York to London King's Cross, get off at the mainline station, go downstairs into the underground and catch the tube. When I got to Doncaster, which the whole journey is just, it was at that time was just over two hours. I got to Doncaster, which was about less than half an hour into the journey, and I had this overwhelming feeling of dread. I got off the station at Doncaster, not knowing, actually just feeling, a, again, like it's in a sort of a dream state. It was like, what are you doing? And I came back to, to York, came back to my home, turned on the TV. It was now about getting on 12 noon, I think. I don't, again, I don't even know why I turned the TV on. I hardly ever watched the thing. And on the news, blanket coverage attack at the station i remember just thinking I, I was going there i was absolutely going it doesn't mean i would have been in the particular carriage involved but i would have been there and something stopped me yeah classic presentiment mm -hmm. isn't it it's just this feeling that we have it's as if i mean dean radin they argued that th there's something in the air almost people pick up through time 
these things now could it be tachyons or something you know subatomic particles that supposedly can move backwards in time because they move faster than the speed of light but there does seem to be a sensitivity to this because i know that the per study uh in america princeton um they'd actually found that building up to 9 11 there was an awful lot of activity and i'm not sure exactly how they measured this but clearly we do seem to sense these things you know that it's, it's obviously something from our times when we were we were closer to the environment maybe you know when we needed to be aware yes yes and do you remember the the the, the big tsunami which again wasn't that far away in time from the terrorist attack i just mentioned and people have documented this phenomenon that happened then many other times before and since about animals heading for the heading for the hills in the case of the tsunami literally heading for the hills they seemed to sense that something bad was about to happen so they were taking themselves to safety now in your book is mentioned the idea of soldiers on the front in i can't remember if it was the first world war or the second world war uh becoming i think the quote was subdued and thoughtful as the the what turned out to be a battle approached because you know it was possible that they would die and something was overcoming them something was possessing them that they they were sensing something about what was going to happen without having any sure way of knowing exactly what that was yeah this was something that priestley himself mentioned um because priestley himself had a, a few very very curious incidents as he was um volunteering to go to the uh, the, the first world war in that he uh what he he should have actually joined one particular regiment uh can't remember which one it was now the, the royal yorkshire or something i don't know but he chose to not do so he he actually walked down to leeds i think it was and enlisted in a different regiment he was well he didn't know why he did it himself until he realized that he would have joined one of the pals regiments and the Bradford Pals, uh, with the, the philosophy was in the First World War, that if you actually had people from one town that all were in the same regiment, they would look after each other. What they didn't realize was that if they all got massacred, the whole town would be wiped out or the whole men, men the, the young men of a town. And this is what happened on the first day of the Somme where he would have been killed had he been in that regiment. But when he was in the First World War, he noticed this phenomenon whereby his fellow soldiers that subsequently were about to die, that died in a day or two days later, would somehow know. They'd become very quiet. They, they would be very introspective. And they knew, all the soldiers in his regiment knew that this, is, this happened. You know, they saw it many, many times. And in fact, he himself was nearly killed on three occasions. And on each occasion, he had either time dilation take place or very peculiar things take place. And this is what stimulated his interest. When he finished the First World War, he went up to um, Cambridge uh, to do an officer's degree. And it was here he became interested in Vedanta and, and Eastern philosophy. So it was these events in the First World War that very much stimulated his interest in the esoteric and the mysterious. Yeah, in your book, at one point, it's mentioned about uh, myths, you know, of the past. What if they're actually not, temporarily speaking, of the past, but they're actually about the future? And the example of Atlantis is given. And, you know, what if Atlantis isn't something that happened in the past, but what if we're actually racing toward it? And I found that concept concept fascinating. Yeah, that is. I don't think that's one of mine, uh, particularly, but it's a very interesting idea, isn't it? You know, again, future memory. And we're looking in the past for things that are about to be in our own future. You know, which is, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one.
And in your the idea of the eternal return that you've written about many times and it comes up in the priestly book, there's the idea of this idea of time being circular, but I like the point that's made about it perhaps more like a spiral. That is to say, time is a cycle, but not all the details are exactly the same each time round. And this feeds into the idea of reincarnation and past lives, i.e. remembering earlier incarnations of ourselves. The idea that we're here to keep finessing this process, you know, we're here to learn and improve. And this actually fits directly onto some spiritual uh, worldviews as well, uh, which is that we're here to become, quote unquote, more like God, uh, you know, more like the creator. And we do it again and again and again until we are able to move to the next level. And that fits with so many ideas as well about, you know, the astral plane, for example, and uh, realms of existence beyond that. So all these ideas, I have a whole section on my website just devoted to the nexus between science and spirituality. And all these ideas just fold in concepts and ideas and traditions from so many different areas. As complex as a pattern and a picture as it is, commonalities keep coming up, you know, common threads running through all of these uh, topics. Very much so. I mean, I, one of the things that it's central to my writing is the idea that, that we live this life many, many times, but we don't live the same life. Uh, Nietzsche very much came forward with the idea that you live the same life over and over again. I'm more of an Ospenskyite in that Ospensky, who was a huge influence on Priestley, Ospensky very much argued that, um, we come back and live our lives again, but we can change them and we can use knowledge that has been acquired from previous iterations of our life to make this life better or more effective. And of course, it is only now with the advent of um, computer games third person computer games where you you go through somebody's life, you know, and you play a computer game and you learn and the person on the screen gets killed, but you're allowed to go back to start again with that knowledge so you can avoid the monster in the cave and you live that life over and over again and of course it's something we can now appreciate and understand and of course we're now on the uh the nexus of a new development of virtual reality uh i mean for instance i recently in uh invested in a virtual reality headset um you know like an oculus rift um and you know some of the things you can do there i don't know if anybody's seen but if you go on to use a, a headset now um and if you've got a powerful enough computer you can actually on google earth you can actually fly in google earth over the whole of the planet in three dimensions looking in every direction and it's in 3d it is absolutely unbelievable so it's showing that reality is is all things that are given to us by our senses now if we live this life over and over again what for what purpose is it and the purpose is to me it's to become perfect it is be, to become to live the perfect life as connor's does in the movie groundhog day he lives the perfect life at the end he does all the right things um and i believe that's what we're here to do and this i think is the great secret this is the secret that has been known for generations, literally, but it is something only now that we're coming to start to realize may be actually correct. And again, Priestley wrote a play called I Have Been Here Before in 1937, where the central character, Dr. Gortler, is somebody who has become aware of the fact he can live his life again. 
and he goes back to an inn in uh, the Yorkshire Moors specifically to stop a young couple making a terrible er er error that they made last time round. And again, there are whole sequences there in that play and monologues about Ospensky. They don't cite Ospensky specifically, but it's about Ospensky. Also, J.B. Priestley, in terms of the circularity of time, in 1932, he wrote a play called Dangerous Corner. In fact, it was his very first play. And people said how clever Dangerous Corner is. It's circular. The ending is the beginning. You know, and again, if anybody remembers, there was a wonderful film call in Dead of Night, which was came out around about 1956, 57 with Mervyn Johns. And it's again a circular storyline. But I know that circular storylines are now more and more popular and they're in many, many movies. Um, Triangle, the uh, British movie, is well worth watching. And of course, the classic uh, that actually applies to J.W. Dunn's theories is Irreversible by Gaspar Noy. And again, if you watch this, all the things I write about are all in these movies. It's the zeitgeist. We talked earlier about deja vu and about past lives. And these things actually are potentially intimately connected. Two things regarding these two phenomena from my own personal experience, which you can comment on or reflect on from your own experience, is that deja vu experiences I seem to have less of now but in the past they would be very much about seeing or hearing something that just rang a bell i've seen this before i've heard this before if i have them now which is much more rare they're much more profound and they occur when doing something which then leads to a feeling sorry yeah a feeling of feeling something that is to say i'll find myself in some activity it can be quite mundane that's not the point whether it's mundane or not but the feeling of like been here before doing this thing at this time with these people in this place, whatever it happens to be, and it's quite overwhelming. It absolutely stops me in my tracks. It's like, whoa, I, I can't really... The whole point is that there aren't the words for it. So there's that, which I think it's interesting how that changes over the course of our lives. And I think that people with psychic abilities sometimes notice that the effect is stronger when they're younger or that it changes over time. And I think that all of our experience, you know, our dreams, the quality of them, I find has changed over my, the course of my life. So I think it's interesting that all of the phenomena that we've been talking about, that our own experience of them might change depending on our circumstances. It's just interesting in itself. And past lives, I had a past life regression session a few years ago. I had a complete vision of a very detailed, complex vision of a life that felt like I'd lived in the past and of which I had no intuition about no in indication of at all before this it was all completely new and yet completely familiar one of the very significant well a member of my family in that dream i then met someone not long afterwards who my every fiber of my being said this is this person if you see what i mean this is the person this is the person from a thousand years ago the member of your family this is them right here right now but they in the meantime they've had another life or whatever they're they're doing something else it just so happens that your paths have crossed again 
there's a whole series of points there that are very, very intriguing and interesting. The the idea that uh, déjà vu, or actually déjà vécu, already lived, uh, déjà entendu, already heard, is is what you were talking about. Then déjà vu, already seen. Uh, there are various. There, I think there are around about forty different definitions of um, déjà vu. In fact, there are seventy-two different seventy-two different explanations for déjà vu. So not all of them can't be right, and it's suggested that probably all of them are wrong, because um, déjà vu is intriguing for me. The power of déjà vu, or the the clue for déjà vu, you've hit on the nail on the head, is the way in which it seems to drop off as we get older. This is a known research phenomenon, so we know this does take place. And I would argue that I, my hypothesis has an explanation for that. If we are living our life again and again, there will be a point where we will survive for longer than we did last time round or in a previous lives. And we will have no memory of that. So deja vu's can't occur because we haven't experienced this. Or our daemon will send us off on a different track from what we did last time so again we won't have any memories so the old you get the more less deja vus are going to take place but deja vus again start again um when you're getting old um uh, there's a, a guy um called chris moulon uh at the university of leeds and he's he has a been doing research on this and deja vu related to alzheimer's and dementia it seems that it starts again as you get towards the end of your life and again this is is vindication of my own hypothesis and i think this would happen in that way now in terms of past lives this intrigues me because i think it's i think we are confusing two things here i think deja vu sensations are you remembering your life or a version of your own life because when you have a deja vu sensation, you are you in your clothes, in those circumstances, surrounded by people you know, or a set of circumstances you know, in the early 21st century. If a deja vu is related to past lives, literally past lives in other histories, your, your scenery would be completely different. In fact, it wouldn't be a recognition of circumstances. It would be the opposite. Because if you suddenly had a deja vu sensation of the 1460s, it would be completely alien to you. The smells would be different. The sounds would be different. The view would be different. So clearly deja vus are not that. But past life memories, I think, are to do with genetics. I think it's genetic memory. I think it's race memory. And epigenetics, which is some of the research that's been doing, being done now in biology, very much suggests that we carry memories through our genes. Now, for instance, um, it is a known they've done work on this newborn uh pigeon chicks will cower if you actually take a cardboard cutout of uh, um an eagle and put it over the nest they will cower but they have no way of knowing what an eagle is they've just been born but clearly it is carried through genetically and there's more and more evidence that we are our genes so if you have genetic memories, particularly as you were arguing that there's somebody that you knew from your past that you could have been related to, this is the case. You know, we have memories because we are, a, and again, it comes back to the fact that we are all one single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. So therefore, you are, you, you are me, I'm you, you, we are everybody else. You know, as the Beatles sang, um, we are all one entity. So therefore, we will have memories of other lives of other people just because we can and we do 
And this is, I think, what makes our dreams so rich. Our dreams are created from race memories, not just individual memories, not just you and your life, but the memories you've had since we crawled out of the, the primeval slime. Something you mentioned there made me think of this documented phenomenon, which is viewing a location as it was in the past. And this is something I've read about more than once when people are suddenly in an environment and they, 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 this may help to explain ghosts actually, because like, um, where, where I live here, there's a pub in the center of town and apparently in the basement, uh, there used to be a, a big Roman fortress here established in AD 79. It was here for several hundred years and people have reported a ghostly apparition of marching Roman legionnaires cut off at the knee because of street level being lower back then than it is now. And I'm wondering if that's potentially viewing a location as it was in the past. Uh, that is to say, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the movement, that this can bleed over into our current reality, which again feeds back into the one of the overarching concepts here, which is that past, present and future are all coexisting. And those Roman legionnaires aren't gone. It's just that we're not perceiving them yeah, because I mean, it is the, the the argument that's put forward is the stone memory argument that yes. that that it can be recreated if the atmospheric conditions are right, like a recording, it can be recreated. The stone theory was very very popular, but if we're taking the fact that time itself is the issue, this would explain why they they're not recordings. They what they are and they're not. We're seeing something from the past. Um, one of my one of my associates in America, uh, Paul Eno, is a researcher in 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 ghostly phenomena in uh, in New in New England, and he experienced at one time where they'd gone to this very haunted place that had been um, Welsh people had set themselves up here in the the 1760s or 1770s, and he was there and he was seeing images and sounds and everything else. And people talking to each other in Welsh. Now, the clay clearly weren't ghosts in the idea of disembodied dead spirits. It was a recording. It was as if time had just overlapped itself in some way. And he was seeing a glimpse of something that had happened in the past. Now, this does explain ghosts. It explains so many things, you know, and it's if we start to acquire one of the things I do in my writing and everybody knows who knows me knows this. I'm not one of these writers that uses quantum physics to explain nonsense. I really, really do the quantum physics. You know, I really do understand deeply and make it my effort to understand quite precisely what quantum physics is really all about. And quantum physics can explain some of these things. You know, there's no question that this is the way forward and it's because quantum physics doesn't make a great deal of sense to us that we need to change our way of thinking and i think this is going to be the next paradigm breakthrough is to understand this i mean for instance again going back to jb Priestley, he has a play that there are time slips that take place he's he's got this wonderful play called the long mirror and in the long mirror there's a time slip and somebody gets to know somebody from the past. There's another play called Jenny Villiers in 1947, which again deals with a haunted theatre and the way time overlaps. I mean, he's such an amazing writer. And all these plays only ever were performed 
10 or 15 times and then were forgotten. The stone theory that you mentioned a moment ago, this is uh, people want a quick primer on it. Go and look up a TV drama from the, the 70s called Stone Tape. The idea being that stone in particular, um, and crystals as well, but it has certain qualities that can record events essentially as they happen. And these are then accessible in some way. In the, in the stone tape, actually, there's some terrible events from the past that are then have been recorded, at, you know, in the stone that are then replayed, quote unquote, in the present. The idea basically is that this it was actually violent events, that this is more likely to be recorded than just somebody mowing the lawn or washing their car, or mundane events which are not significant. We all know about certain types of psychic phenomena and magic. The idea behind them is that they happen with people at a great focus of concentration, of will, uh, or under stress, for example. And that feeds into the stone tape theory, the idea that these are dramatic events. And it's interesting that a lot of the effects that we're talking about here appear more likely under stress or, or in exceptional circumstances as opposed to just mundane, everyday circumstance. We think of like, uh, telekinesis, for example, as being not something that, you know, the ability for the, to move something physical with the mind is not like, uh, something that you just do casually, like, say, oh, I left my, I left my coffee over on the kitchen counter. I'm just going to move it from there to the table now because I can't bother getting up. It doesn't work like that. Um, that it's extreme circumstances. This then takes us into another important phenomenon. That is to say the near death experience, which by definition is happening under stress in extremis. Oh, absolutely. The near-death experience, again, is intriguing. And as you know, I've written extensively about the near-death experience and exactly what it symbolizes and what it means. And again, bringing it back to the subject of uh, our discussion here, J.B. Priestley, 1939, he wrote a play called Johnson Over Jordan. And Johnson Over Jordan is a near-death experience. I mean, he was that much in advance. He, The central character, Johnson, has died. And when the stage opens, there is a funeral taking place and you see all these people talking to each other and there's this man flitting between them and you realize he's the person who's just died and he's in a bardo state. And in the bardo state, he actually is allowed to see elements of his own past and the things he did in his past and how it affected his own future. And in fact, Priestley spent a lot of money on this play. The, 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 the music was by Benjamin Britten, for instance. They had dancers, they had everything. And indeed, I'm in discussion with the Priestley family about trying to get a production of this on again. And we are thinking about how we can water that down to do a performance of it. Um, so the near-death experience is something that is, is of profound importance. And I think it can tell us a great deal about what happens to consciousness at the point of death. Anthony, did you ever watch uh, the late 70s, early 80s British TV series called Sapphire and Steel? Yes, occasionally, yeah. Okay, so now that was a big influence on me growing up. It was absolutely not the sort of thing that would ever get made today. Da David McCallum and, and Joanna, uh, Lumley. Joanna Lumley. Yeah, yeah it'd probably be viewed as deeply uncommercial and impossible to market these days. Uh, but anyway, without going into details of what it is, uh, people just Google Sapphire and Steel, you'll find it. That was the first time I really remember becoming absolutely fascinated by the very subject of time itself and the idea that it is not 
what it appears to be, and it does not function in the simplistic way that we think it does. I was aware of the idea of time travel, which was also fascinating, you know, going back to the past, going forward to the future. I'd read about that in lots of science fiction books, but this was much more sophisticated. Now, I'm mentioning this because I think that any of the listeners interested in concepts around time would probably enjoy this series. But also, I remember thinking that people, when reading your book, I thought, the person or persons who wrote this series, I wonder, did they read Priestley? Because there were so many things. When I was reading your book and reading about Priestley's work, I thought, hang on a minute, this is, you know, this is, this has happened before. So I, I looked it up and the writer of Sapphire and Steel was, uh, PJ Hammond, Peter J. Hammond. And he was a well-known British TV screenwriter of the period, worked on Z Cars and, and all sorts of other well-known series and a bit of Doctor Who actually as well. And I, so I went looking for a link. Now I only did this this afternoon, so I had very little time. <laughs> But do you know what? I found a connection between P.J. Hammond and Priestley. Wow, uh, go on. Yes. In between 1975 and 1978, for three seasons, there was a supernatural anthology series on British TV called Shadows. He Sha- did, go on, called what? Shadows. He did The Other Window. I don't even, I didn't even look at any of the titles of the episodes, but, um, uh. notable writers for Shadows, the TV series included P.J. Hammond and J.B. Priestley. Do you know know what? You've just put shivers up my spine because that was the point I was about to come in to say. The Other Window was part of that series and it was written by J.B. Priestley and Jaquetta Hawkes, who was his then wife. And in it, it's about a time slip. And it's somebody, a a scientist comes home and he places on the window um, a a kind of a, a, a crystal. And the children see the past. And the elder child in it is um, the girl that used to be in uh, Rodney's wife in Only Fools and Horses. Mm-hmm. Can't remember her name now. She was in EastEnders comparatively recently as well. And literally, I was thinking that was the very last thing that Priestley did that was to do with the media was that. So oh, that really? is really incredible. Thank you for that link. Uh, do you know if this guy's still alive? What, Peter Hammond? Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, we could find that out quite quickly, but I'm, I'm not sure, actually. But yeah, I can see where you're going with that question. But he, he may well yeah. be. He may well be. Very interesting. Because the long the long window was lost, you know, because he did another play. He did uh, in the, 1960, the long- another play that was another that was called The Other Window, which was the on its TV series. Ah. But he also did a play, a radio play in 1968 called Anyone for Tennis. And that was a near-death experience and time slip. And again, really, really weird. Really, really weird. Exactly. Well, as we begin to bring things to a close for today, Anthony, one of the headline questions, I suppose, in all of this, which relates to quantum physics and every detail of what we've been talking about so far in one way or another, is the idea that there there is one mind, that there is one consciousness, and that we're all individuated parts of it. Therefore, does the existence that you and I are experiencing depend on an act of observation by another that is to say the the one mind you know to put it another way in religious terms is this reality a dream of god and that ties into there's a lot of creation myths actually about you know how the world and the universe came into being which actually more or less said some of them specifically say god dreamt and you know this all became and that one day god will wake up again as it were so the idea that that ties in with observations and theories in quantum physics, I find fascinating. And I don't want to over-egg this pudding, you know, about the 
quantum physics, as you said before, quantum physics can be used to to try and explain a lot of nonsense. But I think if we being rigorous about it, um, it does actually have huge implications. It's just a little bit unfortunate that some people are rather lazily just sort of saying, you know, explaining hocus pocus theories and just saying, oh, quantum physics, you know, it's a shame that kind of that's muddied the waters in the way that it has. Well, I think you're hitting the, hitting the nail on the head here in terms of, of course, quantum physics, a lot of quantum physics. And I know quantum, some quantum physicists will argue that I'm misinterpreting this. I'm not. But people will say I am is the observer paradox in quantum physics, the idea that subatomic particles exist in a superposition of states, statistical states that the wave function function is collapsed at the act of observation or the act of measurement and a potential subatomic particle, a, pro a, a probability wave becomes an actual particle. Now, twin slit experiment has shown this and other things have shown it. But the implication here is if it is the observer that collapses the wave function, how does something exist when there are no observers around? Now, Roland Knox, there was a very famous poem by Roland Knox, the Catholic theologian, and it was something along the lines. I can never remember it fully, but it's, you know, about the tree in the quad. Uh, and it's a kind of a letter and somebody's asking a question said, you know, if there's nobody around in the quad, there's nobody to observe the tree. It cannot be there. And then there's, and then it's you get a response and it says the tree is always in the quad because I am more observing that P.S. God or something. And it's the idea that there is the observer, the soup, the uber observer that is the collective consciousness of everybody that is observing everything and keeping everything in existence. Now, it could be possible. You know, there, there is no reason why there cannot be a super consciousness that is we are all part of, you know, and if consciousness is prime and it's more and more coming down to the fact that the universe is evolved for the evolution of consciousness, there's a counter argument to say the universe has evolved itself in order for itself to become self-aware of itself. You know, the universe itself is becoming aware and it needs that there is. A, it's even more interesting. There's a, a concept called anamnesis, which was platonic originally. It's the idea of loss, loss of loss of memory. And the idea is that God has forgotten he's God and he's become embodied and he needs experience to become aware of the fact of who he is now again this was a central thesis of one of the novels of um uh philip k dick um the dark inv the dark invasions or something the the divine invasions and this was again there's a character in there called manny who is in fact god who's forgotten he's god now we're getting into realms of theology here but you will find that an awful lot of the major quantum physicists of the 19th century, as they get towards the end of their age, uh, their, 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 they became older, became far more philosophical. Schrodinger, for example, um, wrote a, a thing called What is Life? Towards the end of his life, uh, uh, Wolfgang Pauli became involved in synchronicity. Einstein was always interested in the concept of the old one that he called whatever it is that, it, that makes everything happen. So it's not so strange. You know, the idea that the universe is in some way fine tuned for the evolution of consciousness is called the cosmic anthropic principle. Um, this has been modernized now to call, call the Goldilocks enigma. But it's the same idea that if there's only one universe, it got it right first time. 
you know and the only alternative is there are multiple universes and we happen to exist in one coincidentally that's right for life there's a lot of huge questions that come out of this and this is my life search you know i'm not religious but i'm spiritual it's it's it, it's pushed me into thinking areas that initially i was uncomfortable with but i'm saying but this is what the evidence is telling me you know you know i'm not being you know i'm not you know i don't have a belief system but what my intelligence and my reading and everything else is telling me is there is something far more than this and what that far more is who's the designer of the program if there's a program here and it's analogous to a computer program i mean for instance one of the things i always wonder is if we have evolved how did dna evolve dna doesn't have genetics dna doesn't have its own dna but dna itself came from somewhere well anthony your work has been part of the breadcrumb trail that i've been following throughout life trying to figure out just what the hell is going on and i take regular delight in the fact that most of us have got actually no idea really what's going on. <laughs> no. Fun trying to find out. And J.B. Priestley has now become part of that breadcrumb trail as well. And I think he was following others who came before him. And that's what we do. And particularly if the idea of former lives and the cyclic time stands up, then perhaps what we're doing is what I mentioned earlier, is coming back and coming back. And each time we get a little other piece of the jigsaw and things make a little more sense and I also have a very strong sense that we're here to tell others and that's in fact why we're doing precisely what we're doing right here because you know there are no others really it's just ourselves it's, it's the one mm. and it's a little bit like well, trying to escape from what um, the quote in your book I think I don't remember if this was from Uspensky or from Priestley or from yourself but trying to escape the petrified routine life that most people live and realize that there's much more to this picture than meets the eye. Ospensky. Ospensky. And it reminds me a little bit like in The Matrix, certain characters seem to have worked out on some level what's going on and they're trying to tell the others. In John Carpenter's They Live, some people have worked out what's going on and they're trying to tell the others. In Invasion (laughs) of the Body Snatchers, a few people have worked out what's going on and they're trying to tell the others. And this is ultimately positive because they're trying to tell the others, trying to tell themselves what this is about and what we need to do and why we're here, what the meaning is, and it moves the whole thing forward. I couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) And the idea is also that actions have consequences. Yes, absolutely. uh, No one is an island, and uh, do unto others is is a real meaningful principle, and this is borne out by quantum physics as well. Yeah, the great John Donne. John Donne was so, you know, the metaphysical poets, he hit the nail on the head with that line, no man is an island. Exactly. And indeed, Priestley himself said, as you quote in your book, well, he hoped his ideas could lead to a fundamental change, could fuel ongoing change in our understanding of ourselves and life, the universe and everything for the better. And it might lead to the evolution of a new universe. And he said, quote unquote, we could do with a new universe. And well, right now, Look out the window, look on TV. We absolutely could. So if your book achieves anything beyond getting people to pick up some priestly books and plays and enjoy them, maybe it can move the whole human project forward just another step. I would hope so. It would be so nice, wouldn't it? You know, wouldn't it just? But let's see. Let's see what we can do. 
Okay, Anthony, today we've been talking about your recent book, Time in the Rose Garden, Encountering the Magical in the Life and Works of J.B. Priestley. Just before we sign off, share with listeners details of your website, your social media, anything else you might be working on, because you're always working on something. Yeah, sure. Um, contact me on, I'm very active on Facebook, as as you know. Um, website is anthonypeak.com. That's Anthony Peak, as in the uh uh, astronaut so it's peak p-e-a-k-e dot com um, present projects um, I'm working close at the moment we're having a, a workshop in central London in July end of July um, which will uh, involve myself and a lucid light machine I'll be putting stuff up on that in the next few days um, other things I'll be speaking about the J.B. Priestley book at this year's Bradford Literature Festival uh, which is also in July um, and at the moment I'm just starting work on my 11th book which will be the sequel to my last book Opening the Doors of Perception and in this I'll be trying to understand exactly what the entities are when people have experiences of other intelligences exactly what are those other intelligences and what can they tell us about reality itself okay thank you very much Greg great as always to talk to you thank you once again for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com thank you